Romans chapter 9, uh, this, this uh, chapter uh, oftentimes presents a challenge. We're going to uh, take it in two weeks, and uh, we're going to look at the first half of it, uh, nine, uh, chapter 1 rather through, uh, chapter 9, 1 through 16, and uh, it's kind of a, a very, uh, it's a shift in the whole theme of, in, in tenor from what we've been looking at thus far in the first eight chapters. But Paul writes here, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, and I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness uh, in or by the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, Uh, the promises, and of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternal, eternal blessed God. Amen. Uh, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called, uh, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, and these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time, an Old Testament quotation, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, which is not of works, but of him who calls. For it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, um, which was a reversal. And as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Uh, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness or unfairness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And with that, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful, Lord, for the redemption, for the salvation that you have granted to us. And Lord, you call us. Lord, to go into all the world and to preach this glorious gospel. Lord, the Bible says that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all uh, should come to everlasting life. And Lord, we thank you for the marvelous grace, Lord, that has reached down, Lord, to touch our lives, and Lord, the lives of so many. And I pray, Father, that as we consider this chapter here, uh, Lord, written by the Apostle Paul, and inspired by your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would give us, we pray, understanding, appreciation, Lord, um, for the fact that, uh, Lord, you are gracious. We thank you, Lord, as many people would perhaps maybe consider you to be unfair, Lord, uh, to not be compassionate, to not be kind. Lord, we know better. Lord, we've, we've tasted, Lord, of your mercy, Lord, of your grace and of your goodness. And I thank you for those that are here this morning. Uh, Lord, we we commit this time to you. Lord, meet with us, we pray. 
We ask these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Well, in chapter 8, it was a great chapter. Uh, I think we took maybe three or four weeks to kind of get through it. And as we came to the conclusion of this eighth chapter, it's almost as if uh, there's such a transition here from chapter 8 to chapter 9. And in chapter 8, he's been saying things like, you know, all things work together for the good to those who love God. That's the qualifying factor, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And then he says things like this, that if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he speaks about all the suffering and the trial and the things that you and I may face or the church may face over the ages. Um, and he says there that all the, in spite of all those things, that we're more than conquerors uh, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, as we move here into this ninth chapter, there's such a transition uh, that it seems like you could almost end um, chapter 8 uh, for Romans 1, and then Romans 2 could, be, could actually pick up uh, in the second half of this particular book. And the one thing we find here as we look into chapter 9, we discover um, that as we've been talking here thus far about God's grace and God's mercy and goodness to the world, the Gentile world of mankind, that now uh, he's focusing, in, and it's sort of like an interlude. Chapters 9, chapters 10, and chapters 11 is sort of like an interlude where all of a sudden he's focused on his own people, the Jewish people. And I think because of that, you know, that, that the church at times, all through history, and, and even today, the church at times has forgotten uh, that God has got a future plan for the Jewish people. Um, there's been uh, different theologies. One of them is called replacement theology. Years ago, before it was called replacement theology, it was called British Israelism. Uh, and the idea was that basically we have taken the place of Israel. God is done with them. He's finished with them. Um, and and you, you, know, you need to be thankful that he's not. Because if, if, if there's no, if, if there's no uh, faithfulness to God's word and promise to them, then what assurance do we have? See, God has been faithful to his people. And even though that nationally speaking, the, the Messiah has been rejected by Israel, God is still saving Jews. He's still saving individual Jews. Uh, the church is comprised of Jew and Gentile. But in a national sense, there's a future time where God is going to work. Um, and again, if you read the Old Testament, if you read your Bible, uh, not only the Old Testament here, particularly in the New Testament, over these next three chapters, uh, he's going to affirm that position and remind us that as the church, uh, that God is not finished with Israel, that he's going to be faithful to the many promises uh, that he's made all throughout history, uh, and we find them all throughout um, Scripture, many of them in the Old Testament prophets. And so he says here, and here Paul, it, the pastoral heart, uh, the loving heart of God comes through this, uh, through this man, Paul, and he says, I tell the truth in Christ, and and again, he says, I'm not lying. Uh, my conscience bears witness uh, through and by the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now, speaking here, basically, that God is not finished with the Jews. You know something? It's kind of interesting. When you look at the Jewish people, man, we... You, not, not too far, you know, more recent history, we can see what's happened to the Jewish people. Uh, go back in the early 1900s, you got the pogroms in Europe. Um, go back to the 1930s, 1940s, you got the Holocaust. 
Uh, and there's many people, there's many people that have, have you know, that's kind of recent history. Many people that have not um, been able to really process that or handle that. And I can remember growing up as a kid in Philadelphia, and I worked as, I worked as a clerk in a Penn jersey, which was an automobile, auto, automotive supply store uh, on Castor Avenue in Philadelphia. And it was a Jewish community in which I was working. And I can remember some of the Jewish people coming in, and some of the older Jewish people. This was back in the this was back in the early 1970s. And I can remember, you know, when they, as they would come in in the summertime, and to see the numbers, the ink, uh, the numbers, you know, that they received in concentration camps. And if you talk to any of the Jews, many Jews today, um, there's even those that they think that God has forsaken them, that God has forgotten them. Uh, because they, 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 will, they will say that if, you know, if God has um, you know, a plan and a purpose for us, why did he allow that? I think in a sense, maybe even as Christians today, don't we ask the question, you know, when you know, we're going through a trial, where is God? You know, what, what, you know, you know, what, to what purpose was it that we had to go through that? But, uh, I, but in the, the um, book of Isaiah, uh, in verses 14 through 16, chapter 49, uh, here the Lord says and reminds us uh, that he's got a purpose because Zion was saying, the Lord has forsaken me. Uh, why has my God forgotten me? And the Lord responds to that by saying, can a woman forget her nursing child and have not compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And you see, God has got a purpose and God has got a plan for the Jewish people. But one of the things that Paul tells us in these three chapters, that nationally speaking, they're set aside for a time uh, where the gospel has gone out to reach, you know, into the world. And there's this day coming. And that's why uh, when we talked about, when we're in the book of Revelation, we were talking about the, the tribulation period. Well, in Jeremiah 30, the, the prophet there refers to that time as the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's the time where God is drawing the nation back into relationship with himself. So very, just very simply to say that God has got a future plan and a purpose for the Jewish people. But when you look at here, you see Paul, just the heart of, just, you know, the, the heart of it's, the, it's the love of God in him. I mean, what would prompt him to say that, that I wish that I was accursed? Have you ever maybe prayed for somebody or thought about somebody that you love, um, maybe a family member? And their life is really trashed. Their life is messed up. And you're, you're just kind of broken about the situation. you got such a burden on your heart. Uh, and you would just almost do anything to see them, you know, brought in to the family of God, to see their lives saved. And, and you know, when we have this kind of love in our hearts, you know, because, you know, natural love basically can just sort of, um, we get tired of people. We're very impatient with people. We, you know, we, we, we write people off very quickly in the natural but there's the love of God is at work in the heart of the people of God that he gives us a just sort of a passion and a desire to be patient, to be loving, to be long-suffering, you know, with people outside of Christ. That's simply the grace of God. And, and if that's ever happened to you, and it seems sometimes when it does happen, it's like, wow, it's almost out of a character for me to be so kind, so loving, so patient, so concerned, to have a burden, you know, for this people. You know, why do you think missionaries go into the field? You know, why do you think maybe people go into, you know, maybe the inner city and work in the inner city and work in difficult ministries? It's the love of God. Remember Paul said at one point, the love of God constrains me. 
Uh, another word there is it, it compels me. Uh, the love of Christ in your life will compel you and me to do things that take us out of our comfort zone that are maybe even seem out of character. Um, you know, before Christ, we can be very cheap. We can be very stingy. And I've seen God work in the hearts and the lives of people where all of a sudden they are prompted to do, to be very, in, to just be incredibly generous uh, to such a degree where it just sort of surprises them. Uh, and that's Christ, isn't it? That's, that's the Lord, you know, working through us and freeing us up and simply making us more and more like him. I don't know how long you've walked with the Lord, but there should be, I think, a, a transitioning, a, tr a transformation over the course of time where you're recognizing that change, that change in you. Um, you know, how you handle people, how you deal with people, um, you know, how you deal with your relationships. Um, I think, you know, when the Lord's at work within us, he's freeing us up from our old selfish ways. He's making us more kind, more loving, more patient. Um, and it should be, it should be in a sense, um, you know, something that we're recognizing, we're seeing that. And we're rejoicing in the fact that, yes, Lord, thank you. You're, you're, you're changing me in, in, in uh, certain and particular areas. You know, so when Paul says this here in verses 2 and 3, and particularly 3, when I wish myself a curse for Christ, it's a little bit like Moses. Remember Moses said in uh, uh, Deuteronomy, where the Lord said he was just, you know, he's going to destroy the people of God. Uh, you know, they were, they were so rebellious and the Lord, and, and Moses said to him, sort of in a Christ-like kind of a way, he said, if you don't forgive them, then blot me out of your book. And, and it's the same compassion, that same love and intercessory, you know, work in the heart of Paul here as he's concerned and praying for his Jewish brethren. And it's interesting, the Lord didn't send him uh, so much to minister to Jewish people as he did the church. Remember, Paul's known as the, what, the apostle to the Gentiles. And if I was picking apostles, I would pick Peter to the, to the Gentiles and Paul to the Jews. Uh, but again, God knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, and, and his faithfulness, uh, he gave such an apostle to you and me. And we have all his writings here to encourage us. And so uh, in verses 4 and 5, we find a number of privileges, seven, seven of them to be exact. Uh, he speaks about the adoption here which really speaks about this, these privileges that God gave to the Jewish people. Uh, when it speaks about the adoption or sonship, as we see it uh, oftentimes in the Scripture, he's speaking about a preeminent position, that when God calls us anyone into relationship with him, that's a preeminent position. That's a very important position to have. The Jewish people had that. They had the glory, we're told here, which means that was God's very presence in their midst. Uh, remember the story of the tabernacle? Uh, in the wilderness, uh, there was the Shekinah presence. It was a fire by night and a cloud by day. And the Jewish people uh, that were basically all surrounding, that was right in the midst of, 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 of God's people for that 40-year period. And then uh, uh, later, eventually, um, th there was the Shekinah presence in the temple after it was built. But any Jew would look at that, uh, at that Shekinah presence, that they would look at that fire at night, and they say, hey, we know that God is with us. There's his presence. There's the symbol of his presence. The Jews had that. They had that witness in their midst. And, uh, and then he speaks about the covenants. They had the covenants. Uh, in other words, these pledges, these agreements, these commitments by God. And there were eight particular covenants that God had made with the Jewish people. Then the law he speaks about. Uh, in other words, they had the Bible. They had the scriptures. In other words, they had truth in a very practical kind of context 
that every day they could, you know, they could depend and look to the truth, the word of God. Uh, and we see that's what, in a sense, the law of Moses is about. It gives them you know, those, those practical things to implement in their life, even though they never would have done them perfectly. But the fact of the matter is they were a guide. As Paul tells us, they were basically a guide to truth. They were a guide basically to the Lord. Uh, and Paul says that they were simply a teacher or a schoolmaster. And then he speaks about the service, you know, the service of God. And I just want to encourage you, know, you, you as well regarding this because we have this as well. You know, when God saves us, he gives us opportunities to serve. And we need to lock in to some aspect of ministry uh, because there's a certain kind of a, a sense of uh, fulfillment and accomplishment when, when we uh, take up, in a sense, those opportunities, whatever that may be. Maybe you, might, maybe you might be, and I've seen this. There are certain people that I've seen in the body of Christ, they're always dragging somebody to church, and they're evangelists. And they're always wanting to witness to, some, you know, to somebody. Um, you know, we have a, we have a couple uh, folks in the church, and they're they're always in the city. They're always walking the streets. They're always handing out tracts. They're always witnessing to people, and uh, and and they just you know that's their niche. That's that's where God and and that doesn't mean God calls everybody to that. Uh, you know, God may call you to serve in a soup kitchen. May God call you to teach a Sunday school class or to work in the ministry. We have people that come in here on Saturday, and they, you know, part of their ministry is just basically to clean. But the fact of the matter is, there is some place where you and I, that God wants to use us, where God wants to bless, and there's, again, a sense of accomplishment. It doesn't have to be some great thing, but whatever it is, um, I think it's important that we ask, Lord, what, what, you know, it's interesting, isn't the Apostle Paul, no sooner was he saved, and he was just one of those kind of guys. He was an A-type. Uh, not everybody is, but the first thing the Apostle Paul said, what would thou havest me to do? <laughs> I love it. The, no, no sooner is he saved, what would thou havest me to do? And again, it's not that uh, God saved us to be his little work slaves, okay? But the fact is that he has called us into this great enterprise. You know, God wants to use your life and my life to impact the lives of those that are still outside of Christ. So many people today still need uh, salvation in the Lord to work in their life. And he wants to use you and me in that. And then he says here, the sixth thing is the promises. In other words, um, when we go to the Word of God, there, there are rich, there are wonderful promises. Uh, what does Peter say? They're exceeding great and wonderful promises that you and I have. In other words, a promise is something, it's a hope for the future. It, it's a hope. It's a, it's a wonderful hope. Um, you know, as God speaks his word, that's why you know what? You've got to read the Bible. If you, if you want a promise from God, you've got to read the Bible. That's just simply the way it works. And if you don't read the Bible, you're not going to be made aware of the promises and the things that God wants to speak into your life. So you come to the Bible um, by faith. And when you, when you open your Bible, if maybe uh, you're saying, well, you know, I've tried reading the Bible and it's not speaking to me. Well, you know what? When you open your Bible, say, Lord, please speak to me. Lord, I, I need, and I'll tell you what you do need, all of us, we need to hear. We need to hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit, taking the word of God and the truth of God uh, and just, you know, breathing it in a sense. Uh, when it says all Scripture is inspired, that's what it is. That's what it means. It's God-breathed. And when you and I open the Bible in faith and we begin to read it, God can just breathe those truths into your heart uh, and into your life. And the seventh thing would very simply be the fact that according to the, according to the flesh, 
or, or according to the geneal genealogy, Christ came. That, that was, the, in a sense, the greatest privilege that the Jewish people had. And so many of them, so many of them had professed to be waiting for the Messiah. You know why so many of them missed the, Jesus Christ when he did came, or when he did come and they put him on a cross? They expected uh, a different kind of Messiah. They wanted a warrior Messiah. That they, wanted, they wanted some Messiah to come on a white horse with an army behind him. And they wanted to be liberated from the occupation powers of Rome and so forth. Uh, so when he came, meek and mild, uh, when he came as the great healer and the great savior and the great servant, uh, that wasn't good enough. They didn't want that. Uh, that's why ultimately they put him on the cross. I There's a lot of people, um, you know, that they, they have a, a, a skewed kind of idea even Christians, this can happen to, that you can have a wrong idea of Jesus. You know, there are some people today, you know, they, well, Jesus, yeah, he's a, he's a great teacher. A great teacher and a, and a healer and all that. Uh, but as far as being a personal savior, as being a redeemer, as far as having a personal relationship, I don't know about you, but I grew up within, I grew up within the Catholic system, pr uh, educated in the parochial system. I never heard that I, you need to have an individual personal relationship with Jesus. I never heard that. I never heard it. And you think that, I think that's true of a lot of denominations. A lot of denominations, this is basically, well, you come to church and you, you, know, uh, you, know, you give your money and uh, you know, pay your dues and that sort of thing and you'll be okay which is wrong. It's really about knowing Him. It's about having a personal relationship and a commitment where you give your life to Him. And I, I'll, never, I'll never get over it, and I don't ever want to get over it. When I gave my heart to Christ in 1975, it was so wonderful, it was so radical, it was so transformational that everything, everything changed overnight. My view, my perspective, my life changed because the Holy Spirit of God came in and He invaded my space. And, and you see, that's what He wants to do with each and every one of us. And I encourage you today, if you do not have, if, if, you, if, you, if, you can't, if you can't nail that one down, if you can't say that, that I know that I know that I know He's in my heart, He's in my life, then you need to make, you need to make that sure. You need to make that certain. You know, the Bible says today, Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And I think the accepted time is very simply when we know God's speaking to us. And oftentimes what happens is when our lives are very empty and very needy. Now, as we look at all these privileges, the tragedy is you can have all that and not get saved. That happened to so many Jewish people. All those privileges, seven great privileges. And again, privileges and advantages are wonderful things, but you know what? They can be squandered. You know, a, a person, you know, put it, in, put it in today's context, they can grow up within a Christian family. They can be educated within Christian schools. And sometimes, you know, unfortunately, I've seen within Christian, you know, over the last, you know, 30 years, 30-some years, I, I've seen more of a focus in Christian parents about getting their kids into college about that, rather than getting their kids saved. Because there's an assumption there that, well, they've gone to Christian school. Uh, they've gone to Sunday school. They live in a home. You know, we, 
talk about the Lord and all that? You know, shouldn't they just be saved by osmosis? <laughs> no. It's a personal decision. And each person has to make that. You know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Do you ever notice that in the Bible? He's only got children. There's no grandchildren. No, nobody gets saved on the coattails of anybody else's faith. <laughs> it's an individual thing where God calls us, you know, in to. Or we talked, we did, I think we talked about that last week or the week before. You know, that when God calls, there's a, there's a prompting. There, there's a drawing. Um, all of a sudden, there's an awareness. There's a thinking of God that all of a sudden takes place. And sometimes that happens abruptly. Sometimes it almost seems like an interruption or an interference. That's the way it happened for me in 1975. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't looking for God. I didn't care about God. All of a sudden, my wife, um, I get up one morning, and she comes to me, and she says, you know, Jesus is real. And I'm looking at her and think, oh, my goodness. She flipped her wig. She's really gone over the edge. And I remember driving her. She, was, she worked at Monroe Developmental Center over in Westfall Road. And I was working in a dental lab in the city. And, and all I wanted to do was talk her out of this. Talk her out of this Jesus stuff. And it's like, you we're not going there. And uh, see, my, my idea of anything other than what I heard had to be a wrong or had to be a religious cult. And... Uh, And she, had, she used to have this marijuana. She'd probably kill me if she knew I was sharing this. She used to have her little bag of marijuana. And I didn't. I, I was just I'm a beer guy. I'm a beer guy. No marijuana. And, uh, and I'd always try to talk her out of that. i say, you don't need that stuff. You don't, you don't, need, you don't need that. And, and uh, so anyway, we get up, and she received Christ the night before. Now, I had been trying to talk her out of this for a long time. And, uh, and she, knew she wasn't a heavy pot smoker every once you know, on the weekend, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and she came in and she said, you know, she, and, and she's trying to tell me about Jesus. And I was like, I'm pushing back, you know. <laughs> and she says, you know, Ray, and she got her marijuana in her hand. She says, if Jesus is real, I don't need this. And she went in and she flushed it down the toilet. And I'm thinking, man, I've been trying to talk you out of this marijuana, and this Jesus guy comes along, and, and, and you're throwing it away just like that. Who's this Jesus? But you know what? There was a reality to it. There, there was a reality, you know, to that. And I remember, um, you know, the, the people that witnessed to my wife, they were a bunch of Jesus freaks. They really were. They were Jesus freaks. Bib overhauls, hair down to here. They all had jobs, but they were Jesus freaks. And all of a sudden, they're coming over to my house. And I'm surrounded by them. And you know, I'm their target. I was their target. And, uh, and I just kind of kept falling back on, you know, I'm a Catholic. Leave me alone. I got my religion. Leave me alone. But you know something? Th there was a reality about it. And I was being influenced because they kept sharing Bible verses with me. And it's like, you know, it's like, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be polite. I'm trying to be polite. But in, in, my, in my head, I'm saying, leave me alone. I want to get away from these people. 
And so that weekend passed, and it was like it was, it was, I was bombarded. And that next week, I'm in, my, in the dental lab where I worked. And I'm just, I'm going back and forth. Because you know what happens? The truth of God got into my soul. It got into my soul, and the Holy Spirit was working on me. And, uh, and so I remember having a list of questions that I, I don't know however this, however this list can ever be answered. I remember saying this list is as long as my arm. But I said this, I said, if God, and I, this is my prayer, this is my great Holy Spirit prayer. Lord, if you are who they say you are, I accept you. Because you know what was kind of interesting in the back of my mind as they were witnessing to me about Christ? I was hoping against hope it was real. I, I was hoping it was real because of what they were saying. Jesus can come into your life. Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change the trajectory, of, the trajectory of your life. He can give you new desires. He can give you a new heart. He'll make you think differently. And I'm thinking they're just trying to sell me a bill of goods. But, but in my heart of hearts, I'm saying, I wish that it was real. But there's only one way you find that Jesus is real. You've got to step over that line, don't you? You've got to step over that line. And, you, and, and, and I did, uh, very carefully. I think I put one toe. I think it was one toe over that line. If you are who they say you are, then you can come into my life. <laughs> what a miserable prayer. But he answered it. He answered it. He came into my life. Kind of a normal sense. <laughs> Praise God, right? Now, some people would ask, looking at verses 6, has, God, has God's purpose failed toward the Jew? Remember, God's word will accomplish what he set it forth to do. That's not only true for the Jew, that's true for you. God's words will not fail. It will accomplish for the thing for which he sent it. He's going to be faithful to his promise and faithful to his word. Now, the reason he's at, they're basically, uh, this is an issue, is because the Jews were estranged from their, their Messiah. They, they missed their Messiah, even though they had all those privileges. So is it, is it uh, but, but it is not, rather, that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are Israel. In other words, salvation isn't automatically gen genetic. Remember we talked about that over in chapter 2. Not everybody, you know, not everybody uh, who is a Jew is really a spiritual person. And Paul puts it in the sort of the, the, the context uh, that the true Jew is the one who's after, uh, who follows after the faith of Abraham. The one who really enters into a relationship you know, with God. That's why I was saying when we were over there in chapter 2, don't ever witness that to a Jewish person. You'll probably get your nose punched in. You'll probably get socked because you're telling them they're not a Jew. But that's what Paul says, you know, as, you know, as an Israelite or as a Hebrew. So salvation is not some automatic genetic thing. It isn't passed on through our DNA. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. It's also a matter, too, of God's selection or God's choosing. We talked about that. Remember, we used a scripture last week of Jesus said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Now, we try to figure that all out. The fact of the matter is, we can't. 
But, you know, we tell people, hey, make a choice. We tell people, make a decision, right? Make, make a choice. And you make a decision for Christ. You, you make your choice, and you discover that he's chosen you. You know who I think the person who doesn't really is, is, is the, the not elected person? The person doesn't care. He doesn't care. Ah, I don't need God. Forget it. <laughs> but I think the person that wrestles with the issue, I think there's a concern there. And I think that God is drawing that person. And again, who's elected and who's not? You're, you, you can't figure that out. You can't know that. that. That's in the divine will of God. And I think sometimes you have to be careful. You know, when you're having the Billy Graham crusade, there were some churches that wouldn't be involved in it. You know why? Because they believe, well, if you're predestined to believe, you're going to believe. If you're predestined not to believe, you're not going to believe. So therefore, evangelism, we don't need to evangelize. It's extreme. That's an extreme position. And anytime Billy Graham has a crusade in any area, there's always certain churches that take that position. Well, the scripture says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. That's evangelism, isn't it? You can't f See, there's a lot of things that you s we simply cannot figure out. We'll talk some more about this, actually, when we get into the latter part of chapter 9 um, next week. So he says in verse 7, not all are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Uh, but in Isaac, and in Isaac alone, your seed shall be called. And remember, uh, uh, Isaac was the son of the promise. And then there was Ishmael, his brother. Same father, right? Same DNA. Uh, you know, one was called and one was chosen and one was not. We see here, too, that God basically, he purposed salvation through a, a, a singular group of people, the Jewish people, and through one person, Jesus Christ. And, and, and even though, um, you know, he has chosen the Jewish people, it doesn't mean that he didn't have a design or a purpose for the other peoples of the world. Remember, the Jewish people, in their relationship with God, were to reach out and communicate the true and the living God to other people, in a sense, just like us. Yes, we're saved, but it doesn't end with us. God wants, God wants to, us to be conduits, if you will, to reach out with his love, with his grace, and, and to communicate uh, what God has done for us. I think that's one of the, great, the greatest evangelistic tools as you just begin to communicate what the Lord has done for you, how he's wrought in your life. And, you know, when I think about salvation, I think salvation is an ongoing work. Not that you get resaved over and over again, but his, his work, his redeeming work, his sanctifying work in your life is saving you every day, every week. What are we being saved from? Our old habits, our old ways, the temptations, the sinfulness, all those things that we are capable of. It's not a matter of coming and, and getting saved every Sunday morning. The fact of the matter is, is when you come to Christ and when you get saved, when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, uh, he is working within our lives, within our hearts to save us, uh, to save us again, what, from the habit and dominion of sin uh, that we can fall back into, you know, in our humanity and in our weakness. <clears throat> so Abraham basically had two sons, one of the flesh and one of the spirit, uh, same father, uh, but two children with two different destinies. And again, God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. But when you go back to Genesis, did God bless Ishmael? 
Yeah. No doubt about it. There were prophecies and there were blessings uh, that God had given um, to them. Now, looking at verse 8, he says, That is that those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God or the children of the promise, um, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So salvation basically is, is not based on, on, on goodness or even bad behavior. You know, uh, self-righteous religious people oftentimes struggle with that. Because one thing you'll notice about false religion and religious cults is they're working to get to heaven. And that's why the Bible says it's not of works. It's of faith. It's of the fact that we have believed in the one. It, it's, it's, it's interesting when Jesus was speaking to a lot of religious people relative to works, he said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And that's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. In other words, the work of redemption is finished. And that's why all we have to do, you know, salvation is so incredibly simple. We just believe in him. We believe in that work that he has accomplished for us in a personal kind of a way. It's, a per- it's interesting, you know, someone can hear the, hear the gospel that Jesus died for the sins of the world without activating that by faith. It's activated by faith. In other words, it has to be activated in a, excuse me, in a personal, applicable kind of a way. A person can accept that intellectually and believe it. Yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the world. But without putting their faith into, into the person of Christ, in the work of Christ, that's not actualized. And many people grow up within religion. Many people hear, you know, Bible verses. But they're never really activated by that personal faith in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that he's bringing out here regarding this whole matter of election, that basically God, salvation is based on on the sovereign right of God to choose whomever he wants to choose. And it's not based on goodness or based on even goodness or bad behavior. See, religion says God saves people that are just, they're good people. They've been good all their life. <laughs> and so therefore, and if you go out and ask somebody, um, hey, do you, do you, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? Well, you know, I, I, I hope to. I, you know, I, I try to be a good person. They will simply tell you that in their sincerity. Because their, 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 their idea of getting into heaven is based on the good things that they do. And that's, ba- that's not biblical truth. That's not biblical religion. That's not going to save anybody. Salvation is based on our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says, there are none good, no, not one. Now, now some people, yes, some people are better and they're gooder than other people, Okay. But here's the, here's the deal, folks. Nobody's good enough. Nobody is good enough, even though some people may be better than other people. I can remember growing up, and I'd have some buddies, and some guys have no moral compass whatsoever. But there'd be a couple of friends that they'd have a moral compass. I can't do that. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Then you have somebody over here that says, yeah, let's, let's do it. Sounds like fun. <laughs> God doesn't save people based on their goodness. 
And that's what he's trying to communicate here. He says, for this is the word of promise, at this time it will come, and Sarah shall have a son, and he would be Isaac, uh, not Ishmael. That was just about a teenager at this point because uh, God said, I'm going to give you a son. There's going to be a line. And we know what happened with Abraham. He, he, kind, of, he, kind, of, he kind of failed in his faith, and uh, he kept getting older. And so he's uh, basically 85, and God has been speaking to this hymn, to this hymn for, you know, maybe, maybe 15 years at this point, maybe even 20 years. And he's thinking, well, we've got to get going here. And so he takes Sarah's maid, and, and she sort of becomes his concubine, sort of like a, a secondary kind of a wife back in that culture. And so she has a, she has a son. And God comes after the son is born and says, um, you know, Sarah's going to have a son. And what, what, is, what, is, what does Abraham say? Oh, let Ishmael live before you. Let him be the one. God says, no, that's not, that was not my plan. <laughs> that, my, that wasn't my plan, Abraham. That was your plan. Here's my plan. You, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. And so at 90 years old, she has Isaac. He's 100 years old. Just, just absolutely incredible. God is going to be faithful to fulfill his purpose and his will. And he is going to work his will. You know, God is sovereign. And a lot of people can test God's sovereignty. And they say God's unfair. But you know, isn't it interesting? Don't we have human sovereignty? How would you protest if somebody said, well, you... You can't buy a Ford. You can't buy a Chevy. You have to buy a Yugo. You, you have to buy a Volkswagen. Well, I want a puppy. Well, you can't have this. You can't have the kind of puppy you want. You have to have a beagle. No. You've got a certain degree of sovereignty. You can buy the kind of car you want to buy. You can live in the kind of house you want to live in. You can have the kind of job you want to have. You can have a certain kind of friends that you want to have. No one's telling you have to have that person for your friend. And yet people have human sovereignty, but they don't want to ascribe divine sovereignty to God our Creator. They charge Him with, oh, He's unfair. He's unkind. He just saves certain people, uh, therefore he, He's unloving. No, He's not. And again, for the person who protests uh, regarding the matter of election, you know, all I tell them is this, you know, choose God and you'll find out you're chosen. <laughs> uh, was it uh, C.H. Spurgeon said regarding this whole matter of, of, of election and human responsibility that he said it, it's sort of like you, you, have this, you have this gate, you have this, this, this grand door that you come into and that, when you come into that door, it's salvation. Uh, and basically, it says there's a scripture over top of that door that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So you believe in him, and you come through that door, and you turn around, you look up, and it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. See, you can't figure it out. And every time you know, the scholars try to figure it out, they get in a tailspin. See, God hasn't called us to figure it out, has he? He's called us to believe. Why does it say in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand? Faith is before the understanding. 
When you put your faith in God, when you believe him, when you believe his word, it is amazing to me. There's a lot of things that I struggled with, I wrestled with, I couldn't figure out. I simply believed it. And all of a sudden, you know what would come later? You know what would follow after that belief? Understanding. By faith, the scripture says, we understand. So not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, so she has, she has twins, uh, for the children not yet being born uh, and having done any good, uh, speaking about Jacob and Esau, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. In other words, the choice... What was spoken to Rebecca was spoken to them before they were born. See, God knows the future in advance, doesn't he? Is it the fact that he knows he's going to choose? In his, because the Bible speaks about what? Foreknowledge. God knows everything in advance. And again, when it comes to the, the, the who, the why, and the how of election, and sovereignty. Folks, there's a certain amount of mystery about it. There's a certain amount of mystery that not only we, but the scholars as well, you simply can't figure out. Listen, if we could figure out God, you're God. Okay? If you can figure God out, you're God. He is much wiser, <laughs> much smarter. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything. He's all-wise. And yet when it comes to these things, there are several components to why he chooses and who he elects, who he calls. There's grace. There's love. There's mercy. There's foreknowledge. There's all these things. You know, when I was considering God's choices, hmm, a scripture came to me that I never thought of as I looked at these verses many different times. We studied it. We've looked at it. But I can never remember thinking of these particular verses that came to me that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Does that wrinkle your pride a little bit? I'm sorry. <laughs> If it ain't true of you, it's true of me. <laughs> He's chosen the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. He certainly has. Now, verse 12, it was said, it was said to her, the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. And that was a reversal. The, earl, the older was always the guy who got the line share. So it was a reversal here because Jacob was the one that God had chosen. And what is interesting, he says, it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. But you know what's a fascinating thing about that? Is they were both scoundrels. When you read the story. You know, how, how does Jacob obtain his birthright? He's, he ripped his brother off. <laughs> You know, when we read this, too, it's important 
because it sounds harsh. You mean before they were born, God could say, I love one and hate the other? Because he also knows what someone will do in the future. Now, did God bless Esau? Yeah. Gave him a country. Blessed him incredibly. But they became the perennial enemies of the people of God. But if we were to put verse 13, the latter part of that, the quotation that comes out of Hosea, if we were to put that uh, in, a, in a contemporary vernacular, or, or this is what the Hebrew would say. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I loved less. And as the, as the Holy Spirit chose the word hate to use it, I think it was to get us to think, because Jesus uses similar terms, doesn't he? When he said, if you're going to follow me, you better hate, hate. And everybody, I would imagine those that, that were there that day and heard that teaching. If you're going to follow me, you better hate your mother, your father, your wife, your children. Sounds radical, doesn't it? Sounds absolutely radical. But what the point that Jesus is simply making, that our love for him compared to our love for mom, for dad, because Jesus was not, command, was not telling anybody to dishonor their mother or the father. He wouldn't tell anybody to break the law. So what, again, we have, to, we have to sort through it. What was he saying? He was saying very simply that our love for him compared to our love for even our spouse, our children, our parents, they're the closest of all relationships. That our love for him should be so great that it would seem like we actually hate the ones that we really love. We don't hate them, but to compare the love that we have for God with those closest relationships in our life, that's, that's what it should seem like. So wrapping this up in verses 15, uh, 14, 15, and 16, uh, he's touching, he, he touches in verse 14 on this unfairness argument, and he's saying basically God is just. He's more. God is more than fair. Don't believe that lie of the devil. God doesn't love you. God's not fair. Why do I have to go through this? God loves you. He cares for you. He's got an ultimate purpose. Remember, God brings good. He doesn't protect us from trials and from difficult things. We, we go through many, many, many similar things that everybody in this world goes through, but God says, you know what? You're going through that, and I'm going through it with you. And I'm going to give you grace. And you're going to come out a better person and a deeper character on the other side of this particular trial, whatever that trial may be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. He deals with humanity in mercy and compassion. In the Septuagint, where that psalm, I can't think the number of it. Can't think of the number of that psalm, where it says it's a mercy. After every verse, it says, the other counterpart says, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. They translate that in the Septuagint is his love endures forever. Because this word mercy here can also be translated love. 
And God has the prerogative, just like any human being, to have compassion and to love whomever he will. Don't say, the Lord doesn't care for you. The Lord doesn't love for you. Love you. He does. He loves us with an everlasting love. He loved us so much he died for us. So then it is not of him who wills. In other words, that the source of our salvation is not that I, I will to become a great Christian. No, 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 no. The only time that our, you know what happens? Our will comes into agreement with his will. <laughs> but we don't get saved because of our will. We get saved because he willed for us to get saved. And he's not willing that any should perish. Incredible statement. So it's God's will that nobody perishes. So all we have to do is get our will in alignment with his, amen? That's always the problem, isn't it? My will, our will. Nor of him who runs. In other words, it, it's not, of the per, it's not of, based on performance. Salvation is not based on performance. And you're not going to miss heaven because you stumbled. <laughs> Though a just person fall, the Lord raises them up again. Seven times, the Bible says. Many times. But of God who shows mercy. You know, the scripture says this. All that come unto me, I will in no way cast out. See, he's been talking about election and sovereignty and all that. But here, we also see that there's human responsibility. If you come to Jesus Christ, he will not cast you out. He'll receive you. If we come sincerely, we come in faith, he will receive us. So as we, cl as we uh, close now in prayer, if you want the Lord in your life, I want you to stand up. I want to pray for you. The Lord's been speaking to your heart. Stand up. He wants to bless you. He loves you. Dear Father, we praise you. Lord, your plan is so awesome. You are so great. Lord, I thank you for, Lord, these are your people. And Lord, for those that have stood, you know what's in their heart. You know their need. And Lord, how we, Lord, we want you. We need you. We thank you, Lord, that, Lord, oftentimes we complain about a lot of things. But, Lord, you have been so gracious to us, so good to us, so kind to us, so merciful, so compassionate. And I pray your blessing upon your people. Oh, Father. Lord, you, only you and you alone know how to meet us in our need. And, Father, I pray for those who stood and for those maybe who were afraid to stand. Lord, you know our need. You know that empty area in our life. And Lord, we know that you're the one who can fill it. Lord, by your grace, by your awesome mercy, Lord, by your love. 
There are so many things, Father, <laughs> relative to these things that we spoke of this morning. We can't figure them out. We can't understand them. But Lord, we're thankful for this, that we know you, the true and the living God. And we thank you for the gift of faith, the, the, the ability, irrespective of, of Lord, our, our inability intellectually, Lord, for the ability to just simply believe. So, Father, I pray and I ask your blessing upon this church, upon our lives. As we go, be glorified in us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.